seated. Good morning. Happy Sabbath to each of you. Thank you for the beautiful music. Not far from your lovely church, just across Central Park in Strawberry Fields, people of all ages flock each day to the memorial for John Lennon. It's a site of celebration, of memory, of conversation. As people remember the impact of this singer-songwriter, the impact he had on them, not only as a member of the Beatles, but later as a solo artist. In 1970, John Lennon released his first post-Beatles album, John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. It's a record that is marked by deep introspection. As Lennon began to address a series of significant and personal issues in his life, issues that had long plagued him, included was the song, God. A song that declares in its opening lines, Lennon's response to our topic today, a topic I've been assigned, a topic what is God. God, Lennon sang, is a concept by which we measure our pain. I'll say it again, God is a concept by which we measure our pain. Since the beginning of time, men and women have looked into the heavens and they've wondered where we came from, and if we were alone. From St. Augustine to Rene Descartes, C.S. Lewis to Baruch Spinoza, Sir Isaac Newton to Sigmund Freud, philosophers and theologians have been captivated by this question, what is God? And their responses have been varied. God has been conceived as either personal or impersonal. In theism, God is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. While in deism, God is the creator, but not the sustainer of the universe. In pantheism, God is the universe itself. In atheism, God is not believed to exist, while God is deemed unknown or unknowable within the context of agnosticism. God has also been conceived as the source of all moral obligation and the greatest conceivable existent. Theologians in our faith community have likewise focused on this question. In the book Seventh-day Adventist Believe, fundamental belief number two reads, and I quote, there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a unity of three co-eternal persons, 
God is immortal, all-powerful, all-knowing, above all, and ever-present. God is infinite and beyond comprehension, yet known through God's self-revelation. God is forever worthy of worship, adoration, and service by the whole of creation. As Genesis 1, verse 1 declares, in the beginning, God. Jack Miles, in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, God, a Biography, asserts that the biblical writers respond to this question in a variety of ways. In Genesis, God is the creator of all things. However, six chapters into Genesis, God is seen as destroyer with the biblical flood. This account portrays God as grieving over his decision to create human beings. And then just a few chapters further, God as re is revealed as the friend of the family as the story of Abraham and his descendants are told. In Exodus, God is the great liberator and lawgiver. In the time of the judges, God is conqueror, father, and arbiter. And as we make our way through the Old Testament, God is the holy one, counselor, friend, ancient of days, and guarantor. God speaks from the burning bush. He is the wind, the loud, rushing wind, and he is the quiet, still voice. One of my favorite authors, the essayist and novelist Frederick Buechner, in his marvelous book, Wishful Thinking, a theological ABC, provides this definition of God. There must be a God because, A, since the beginning of history, the most variegated majority of people have intermittently believed there was. B, it's hard to consider the vast, the complex structure of the universe in general and of the human mind in particular without considering the possibility that they issued from some ultimate source, itself vast, complex, and yet somehow mindful. C, built into the very being of even the most primitive human, there seems to be a profound psychophysical need or hunger for something like truth, goodness, love, and under one alias or another, for God himself. And D, every age, every culture has produced mystics who have experienced a reality beyond reality and have come back using different words, different images, but obviously and without collusion, describing with odd adoration the same 
indescribability. Statements of this sort and other like, others like them have been advanced for several thousand years as proofs of the existence of God. Buechner continues, however, a 12-year-old child can see that not one of them is watertight, and even all of them can't together convince anybody unless his or her predisposition to be convinced outweighs their predisposition not to be. Buechner concludes his definition by saying, it is impossible for man to demonstrate the existence of God as it would be for even Sherlock Holmes to demonstrate the existence of Arthur Conan Doyle. This morning, despite our very best intentions, we will never be able to fully comprehend God. We may devote our lives to the study of the Bible in search of the God who is at the center, yet we remain challenged to succinctly and with assurance define God. And so let me tell you a bit of a secret here. When Pastor Kyle informed me that I was to address the question, what is God, as part of an ongoing series of presentations you are having here in your congregation, I went directly to Dr. Friedbert Nienau, Dean of the HMS Richards Divinity School at La Sierra University. I needed help. I found it a challenging subject to address. And so Dr. Nienau, as an Old Testament theologian, as an archaeologist, he suggested that perhaps, perhaps the best way we can understand God is to take seriously what he declares to be of greatest importance. Dr. Nienau recommended that we this morning give attention to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6 begins as a quest for the proper possessions to present to God in worship. And I want to share the words of Micah chapter 6 from Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message. And I begin with verse 6 of chapter 6. How can I stand before God and show proper respect to the high God? Should I bring an armful of offerings topped off with yearling calves? Would God be impressed with thousands of rams, with buckets and barrels of olive oil? Would he be moved if I sacrificed my firstborn child, my precious baby, to cancel my sins? Now in Israel, an ordinary burnt sacrifice would be a year-old calf. So for the worshiper who was truly committed to God, what would be an extravagant sacrifice? A human child? Knowing the willingness of Judah's leaders to stoop to this very level of depravity, he includes this example. And yet the prophet 
the prophet with eyes wide open to all that is taking place around him, compels us to ponder, are these the things that God most desires? Is this ultimately who God is? The answer that Micah provides is altogether unexpected and overwhelmingly radical. While Israel had become accustomed to bringing an offering, Micah makes it clear that God wants not what we have, but who we are. God wants us and nothing else. Listen to verse 8, again taken from the message. But he's already made it plain how to live, what to do, what God is looking for in men and women. It's quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't, don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. Here in this short verse, we find the answer to what is important to God. It is disarmingly simple, even universal. And it clearly does not require the trappings of formal religion to understand. In fact, here in this verse, with all of our human concepts of religious belief and practice removed, we are able to gaze into the very heart of God. And we begin to understand his desire for each of us as his much-loved children. And what, Micah asks, does God require? The answer is as eloquent as it is understandable. God requires justice. He requires a love for kindness. And knowing our inability to do these things on our own, he requires that we walk with him in humbleness. For the early hearers of this message, this first requirement, justice, or mishpat in the Hebrew, was wrapped up with their understanding of judgment. There are some 13 aspects of this one word in the Old Testament. And here, in this passage, it is revealed to be rooted in God's character. Micah's listeners would have understood it to be an attribute of man in general and judicial processes among them. Wise men speak of it, and God requires it, and righteous magistrates employ it in judgment. The second requirement, chesed in the Hebrew, means mercy. It means kindness, love. These early hearers would have understood it as a way in which to identify one's loyalty to God's covenant, the God who, acting in faith, calls his children to be faithful. Chesed is an ethically binding requirement, a relationship between people, freely given and often most unexpected.
The third requirement, tzedakh in the Hebrew, is translated as humble, as modest. And what's amazing about this word is that this is the only place in the entire Old Testament that it is found. Here it is used in relationship to our walk with God. A humble walk, a modest walk, is what is desired. Never are we to forget that God alone is God, and we are not. Justice, kindness, mercy, love, humility. These are the attributes of God, and these are the attributes God longs to see in those he created. As we move from the Old to the New Testaments, we find the early church enunciating who God is as converts to Christian faith are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Scripture asserts that it is through Jesus that God's love and purpose are fully revealed. Jesus is the hope foreshadowed in the Old Testament sacrifices and festivals. He is the one who occupies center stage in the Gospels. He is the good news proclaimed throughout Scripture. And as Jesus himself identified in John 14, verse 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. At the center of our university campus, stands the glory of God's grace. Two sculptures taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, that illustrate what God is like and what God expects of those who follow him. The first sculpture tells the story of the prodigal son and the father who, with incredible joy and determination on his face, opens wide his arms to welcome his child home. I've often thought that there could be no stronger message for each student who steps onto our campus to receive. Here, you will be embraced with open arms. You are a beloved child. The second sculpture captures the moment when a widow, anxiously searching for her one lost coin, finds it. The joy on this woman's face again expresses to our campus family and to those who visit the value that God places on each life and of our desire to treat each person as a child of God. The third story Jesus tells is of the shepherd, the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go in search of the one that is lost. We look forward to the day this sculpture will be added to the other two, forming, forming a triptych, a triangle of God's grace on our campus. And so, what is God? A father longing for his lost child to return home? A woman who will not give up until her lost coin is found? A shepherd who strikes out into the night in search of the one lost sheep. Jesus, throughout his life, consistently addressed the question, 
what is God? Perhaps one of the clearest explanations came that Sabbath day in the synagogue in Nazareth when he announced his agenda. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus says, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here, Jesus is enunciating God's agenda. It is an agenda that will take Jesus to the outcasts of society, lepers and prostitutes and tax collectors, the lonely, the diseased, the hurting ones who do not have a voice and who many believe do not count. The poor, whose lives have been one succession of bad news after another, they're going to get good news. The captives, whose lives have been bound, will be released. The blind, who have been denied sight, will see again. And the oppressed, whose lives have been nothing but enslavement, will be liberated. Everything gets reversed. Everything is changed. It's a challenging agenda. It will threaten the religious leaders of the day, even as it welcomes those who have no voice and no place in the prevailing culture. Women, Gentiles, sinners. It is an agenda that declares that all people, all people are worthwhile and in need of salvation. It is God reaching out in human flesh. As human beings with finite minds and hearts that so often stray, we will always attempt to make sense of our lives by looking beyond ourselves. We may never, ever get God fully right. Yet, as Frederick Buechner writes, all wise, all powerful, all loving, all knowing, we bore to death both God and ourselves with our chatter. God cannot be expressed, but only experienced. In the last analysis, you cannot pontificate, but you can only point. A Christian is one who points at Christ and says, I can't prove a thing, but there's something about his eyes and his voice there's something about the way he carries his head, his hands, the way he carries his cross, the way he carries me. The Sabbath, I want to encourage us to continue to be fascinated with this question. Let us continue to study and to discuss and to question let us bring our very best biblical study, our art, our science, our theology to the task as we ask, what is God? And let us be prepared 
to share what we learn with a world that is, as John Lennon expressed, so filled with deep pain and longing. Let us live our lives open, open to the reality that we might be the best answer to this question of people who are searching, who are in pain, an answer that God is attempting to provide. Let us consider how we can truly embrace being God's hands, God's heart, God's love. Let us live our lives with our eyes open to God's grace. And finally, let us truly remember it is likely that we will never, ever get it fully right. But as Beekner so humorously and so powerfully sums up theology, it is the study of God and his ways. For all we know, dung beetles may study man and his ways and call it humanology. If so, we would probably be more touched and amused than irritated. One can only hope that God feels likewise. Amen. Thank you.